In the age of contact, Reinhold Oldschmidt stood out for all the wrong reasons. On November 5, 1957, Schmidt's first alleged contact with Saturnalians took place in Kearney, Nebraska. He was traveling for his job as a salesman when a light overtook his attention. He drove towards it, and as he did, his car died. This feature of the phenomenon was beginning to emerge in late 1957, the most famous instance occurring in Leveland, Texas. In a clearing, a balloon-like object hovered slightly above the ground. Schmidt approached the craft, and when he did, was hit with a beam of light that paralyzed him instantly. Two men emerged from the craft and invited him on board, which is an odd move since you, you, know, you paralyzed him, but Schmidt obliged. Inside was a crew of four additional members, two men, two women, and they were attending to various control panels. All of them looked the same, dark hair, tan skin, and they spoke in German, which Schmidt just happened to know, because he studied it in high school. Now, let's take a second here. How much of your high school language course do you remember? Schmidt was in his, I believe, 50s at this point, so I don't know, man. He just, uh, he just clung to it. I mean, I took Spanish, and about the only thing I remember is the phrase me gusta and the fact that baño stands for bathroom. These beings spoke in English also, but had thick German accents. Schmidt spent a short period of time on the ship before he returned to his car, puzzled by the entire experience. He felt it was his duty to report what he had seen. First, he drove to a minister's house, and when he wasn't home, drove to the nearest police station. They obliged him, and he returned to the landing site with an officer, where they allegedly found landing marks and soil that was an odd shade of green. Schmidt returned to the site the next day with the chief of police, a reporter, and an attorney for the city. The story made headlines. That evening, he gave a press conference at the local police station. According to Schmidt, shortly after the press conference, they told him to change his story, to admit that it was all a lie. But ever the innocent man, he refused. That was when the Kearney Police Department revealed that Schmidt had been previously arrested for embezzlement. He was detained and later failed a mental evaluation, which landed him in a hospital for treatment. Schmidt claims that the police told his brothers that he was mentally ill, suicidal, and worst of all, a pot smoker. The man afflicted with reefer madness remained in the hospital for two weeks before his boss flew to Nebraska and vouched for his sanity. Once free, Reinhold Schmidt continued his contact with the Saturnalians and Mr. X, the only Saturnalian that would communicate with him. They flew him around the galaxy. He saw the pyramids in Egypt. He walked through the front door of the Great Pyramid and was led to a room which housed a spaceship. In one corner of the room stood a wooden cross perfectly preserved and hanging from it a white robe. The other side held a crown of thorns. That's right. This spaceship belonged to Jesus, who flew it to Venus and whom Mr. X and his crew of Saturnalians flew from Venus back to Earth and waited for the day that this secret was revealed to the human race. 
I know, logic, right? It gets better. During these flybys, Mr. X and crew would fly over the site of cancer-curing crystals. Schmidt felt that it was his duty to mine them for the good of mankind, but he needed funding in order to complete the work. By 1961, Schmidt had amassed a following, and many of his followers skewed toward the older side. Before long, he had built many of his elderly followers out of $30,000. Not a small pittance back in the day. He was promptly arrested and convicted of grand larceny in October of 1961, serving a portion of his sentence before being paroled a few years later, and fading into obscurity before his death in 1974. Reinhold Schmidt is a relative unknown quantity in UFO history. His influence was little, but his conviction in 1961 seemed to be a signpost for those claiming alien contact. A transformation was taking place, and it began in September of 1961, about a month earlier, in the White Mountains of New Hampshire. My name is Rob Christofferson, and this is Episode 11 of the Our Strange Skies Podcast. In September, the White Mountains of New Hampshire are a cocoon, a liminal space caught between the end of summer tourism, where amateurs and experts ascend the trails that line the mountainsides, and the beginning of ski season, when the white crags would be littered with moving specks, visible from a distance ascending and descending the mountaintops. And before that, hunters would take to the woods in search of whatever their licenses would allow them to shoot. On the night of September 19th, Betty and Barney Hill were driving through the White Mountains, returning from an impromptu honeymoon. They had been married in May of 1960, and since then had spent more time apart than together. Barney was a civil servant with the U.S. Post Office. He had been working at the Philadelphia-based branch, but transferred to Boston's southern annex to be closer to Betty. The 120-mile round trip was hard. He worked nights at the Southern Annex, and slept during the day. Betty's job didn't help matters. She worked as a social worker for the state of New Hampshire, and managed 120 cases on her own. The couple had met in the summer of 1956 through mutual friends that ran a boarding house. Betty, a Caucasian woman, had been renting a room while her apartment was being remodeled. Barney, an African-American man, and his family had retreated to New Hampshire to beat the summer heat of Philadelphia. They had planned to be just friends, but through their time together, a romantic relationship blossomed, and when Barney had separated from his wife, his trips to Portsmouth became more frequent. 
Betty, too, came from a previous marriage to a man named Bob Stewart. Soon after their wedding day, Betty adopted Bob's three children, and they tried to make a family together. But Bob had other ideas. While married, he was seeing another woman on the side, and it wasn't long before the two divorced, and from the settlement purchased a house. In the summer of 1957, while finishing her degree, she moved to Pennsylvania to complete field work at the Layton Farm, a home for delinquent girls near Philadelphia. The two were able to spend more time together. Barney had been working as a civil servant with the U.S. Post Office since his discharge from the Army in 1944, following an accident with a grenade that forced him prematurely to wear dentures. Barney was active in his community. He served as a committee man for the Boy Scouts, Troop 133 in Philadelphia. Both he and Betty were members of their local NAACP chapter, where Barney served as the legal redress chairman. He was also a member of the State Advisory Board of the United States Civil Rights Commission, as well as a member of the Board of Directors for the Rockingham County Poverty Program. Once Betty had completed her degree, the two moved together to Portsmouth. Kathleen Martin, Betty and Barney's niece, chided in her book, Captured, that the reason Barney proposed was so he didn't have to drive from Philadelphia anymore to see her. He was able to transfer to an annex in Boston, 60 miles away, but the stress of the four-hour round-trip journey and odd sleep schedule took a toll on Barney. Before the incident to come, he was being treated for an ulcer with medication. On his drive into the annex on Friday, September 15, 1961, Barney decided that he would put in a request for a few days off. Betty had some vacation days coming up and he thought that she would enjoy a few days in Canada, visiting Niagara Falls and walking around Montreal. This was the first trip the couple had been able to take since marrying in May of 1960. They didn't have a lot of money, but they pulled together what they could, prepared food to take with them, borrowed a cooler from their friend Lee, and packed the car and took off on Sunday, September 17th. They brought along their dashing. Delcy, who slept comfortably in the back seat for most of the trip. They also brought along a pistol owned by Betty, in case they needed to sleep in the car. They spent most of that day traveling across Vermont and New York, to Niagara Falls and Toronto. Early on the 19th, they had made plans to rent a room in Montreal and take in what the city had to offer, but that didn't happen. Barney made a wrong turn. He attempted to get his bearings again, but had a difficult time reading French street signs. They drove east, hoping to find a motel that would accept dogs on the edge of the city. But the hills changed their plans immediately, when the radio DJ announced that Tropical Storm Esther would be slamming into southern portions of New Hampshire the next day. They decided then to drive through the night. The hills drove east to Shearbrook where they turned south into New Hampshire. In Colebrook, they stopped at a small restaurant to grab a bite to eat. Barney chowed down on a burger, 
while Betty enjoyed a piece of chocolate layer cake and coffee at the counter of the quiet diner. The couple didn't linger long, desiring to make good time. The sky was clear. The moon was just ten days old. They departed the restaurant at 10 p.m. and drove south, 30 miles towards Groveton. It was in the skies over the town that they saw a strange light for the first time. Jupiter hung low in the sky, and this light flew underneath the moon. The hills thought it was a shooting star, but changed their minds when it made an abrupt turn upward. They continued on their route, doing roughly 30 miles per hour on Route 3. And while on the winding path, Betty became more and more excited. Barney would pull the vehicle over numerous times on their route through the White Mountains to get a better look at whatever it was flying about. Their first stop occurred near a rest stop overlooking Mount Cleveland, some 20 miles south of Groveton. Barney retrieved Betty's 32 pistol from the trunk in order to protect himself from potential bears as he walked Delcy while Betty grabbed the binoculars for a better view. Silhouetted against the moon, the light took on the appearance of a wingless cigar. Barney was dismissive, believing the object to be a plane heading west toward Montreal. He handed Delcy off to take a moment with the binoculars. It was then that Barty noticed the backlit windows of whatever the object was. He had seen the backlit windows of planes as a mail carrier in Philadelphia, near the International Airport. When the object made another turn, it was time to leave. The hills were alone on the road that night. Seldom had a car passed them, and the road was quickly becoming a lonely place. Anxiety was slowly beginning to replace the couple's curiosity. The object was coming closer, descending like a child slowly walking down a set of stairs, leveling off before descending again. Near Franconia Notch, the UFO passed behind the restaurant at the top of Cannon Mountain. It was 11.10 p.m. now, and the lights had gone out at the top of the mountain. Perhaps the staff had closed the restaurant for the night. Those details remain unclear, but this was the first time the hills lost sight of the craft. Near the famed Old Man of the Mountain, Barney would pull the car over for a second time. He needed to convince himself that this was a military jet or helicopter. It had to be. He had to abate the fear that was rising up in him. The erratic flight path of the craft reminded him of a trip he took with his first wife and children to French Creek in Pennsylvania. While swimming, a military jet recklessly dive-bombed the creek near his family, before pulling up and creating a sonic boom in the process. Barney kept hoping that he could flag down a passing patrolman to have them look to confirm that what he was seeing was real but no car came through. The couple stopped again near the flume, but found that their view was obscured by a thick grove of trees. They would continue on past Indian Head before the craft would come into view again. From this position, they could tell that it was rotating, 
and that the convex lighting only covered half of the craft. When it turned toward the mountains, its light would reflect off the peaks, and in turn, that light would glint off the bottom of the craft. One mile later, Barney was forced to stop the car. The craft, now a few hundred feet away, positioned itself above the road. He described it as, quote, a big, big pancake with windows and lights. Not lights, just like one big light, end quote. On both sides, a pair of red lights strobed continuously. He exited the Chevy Bel Air and braced himself on the door and the roof. In his mind, Barty pleaded with God. He couldn't admit that it was a flying saucer. It had to be a military helicopter. Had to be. But things weren't adding up. Whatever this was, it was completely silent. The way that it stopped on a dime and performed impossible maneuvers that no aircraft could do. It was a flying saucer. When Barney moved away from the car, the craft, in a singular arc and without rotating, moved into a clearing on the left-hand side of the road. It was as if the craft was keeping an eye on Barney in anticipation of his next move. Armed with the gun and binoculars, Barney made his way slowly across the road. From the edge of the field, approximately 300 feet from the hovering craft, the lights were turned away from him. But as if on cue, the craft turned toward Barney. At the windows stood a collective of beings, between 8 and 11 in number, looking out at him. He described one of them resembling a red-headed Irishman, while the man he would refer to as the leader reminded him of a Nazi officer because of his clothing. His eyes were large and slanted, and according to Barney, made him look evil. This individual wore a black military-style cap, a shiny black jacket, and a scarf that was draped around his neck. Stay there and keep looking. Just keep looking and stay there. And keep looking. Just keep looking. This being intoned. Barney felt as if the words were coming from the man's eyes and entering his head. The being's words appeared to have power. Barney Hill was anchored to the spot. He couldn't pull the binoculars away from his eyes. He pleaded with God for his intervention until, at long last, he was able to rip the binoculars from his eyes. It had been more than five minutes since Betty had last seen her husband. She was fast becoming fearful herself and leaned over the seat to push open the door. She yelled at him to come back, and moments later he did. Barney burst from the field hysterical. Within seconds, the car was careening down the road. Betty rolled down the window to get a better view of the craft. She looked up, but couldn't see anything. There were no stars, no moon, just an unnatural darkness following above. Clark's trading post was dark as the hills passed by. Not even the light of the moon touched the roof. In the darkness, the hills perceived a series of beeps bouncing off of their car. They caused it to vibrate ever so slightly. Not enough to affect their driving, but those unnatural sounds would be the last they would remember for some time.
Betty remembered the car coasting through North Woodstock, past the Jack-O-Lantern Golf Resort. She remembered a strange turn they made, driving over a railroad bridge and a bizarre roadblock where they were stopped by strange-looking men. And nearby, a flaming red-orange moon sat on the ground. They emerged from their fog after hearing a second set of beeping sounds in the town of Ashland. Do you believe in flying saucers now? Oh, Betty, don't be ridiculous. That wasn't a flying saucer. For the remainder of the trip home, the hills were silent. They walked through their door later than expected. Barney absentmindedly looked at the clock to see that it was 5 a.m. According to Betty, quote, We entered our home, turned on the lights, and went over to the window and looked skyward. We stood there for several minutes. Then Barney said, This is the most amazing thing that's ever happened to me. We both wondered if they would come back. We felt very calm, peaceful, relaxed. We sat at the kitchen table, looked at each other. Do you believe what happened? We agreed that it was unbelievable, but it had really happened. We would return to the windows and look skyward. You cannot overlook the profound nature of what the Hills experienced, and how they treated it when they arrived home. They showed telltale signs of an abduction event. Barty felt clammy and decided to take a shower. The couple slept until three that afternoon, and when they woke, split into two separate rooms, and each of them drew the object they had seen. Their drawings were identical. Barney was adamant that they not tell anyone about their encounter. Betty was of a different mind, and later that evening shared the details of the encounter with her sister Janet Miller. Janet had been a witness to a UFO years before, and if there was anyone that would understand, it was her. Janet phoned one of her neighbors, a physicist, who suggested that they use a compass on the car to see how it would react. The former police chief of Newton Falls, who had been visiting Janet that evening, suggested that the couple report their sighting to Pease Air Force Base nearby. Betty stepped out into the rains of Hurricane Esther with a compass in hand. Barney refused to accompany her, still trying to deny the reality of the incident. She walked around the car, unsure of what she was looking for. But there, dotting the trunk, like the moon is full of craters, were a number of highly polished circles the size of half dollars. And when the compass was placed over them, began to spin wildly. With this discovery came a new form of anxiety. Betty talked to herself to keep calm. With the courage of a few neighbors, Barney stepped outside and experimented with the compass, which gave off similar readings. Betty and Barney's mannerisms following the encounter were as baffling as the UFO itself. Before the hills went to sleep, after arriving home, Barney retrieved their luggage from the car. Before he could bring it inside, Betty suggested that he leave it out on the porch, fearing that it may be radiated. The next day, when Janet and her family paid the hills a visit, 
Betty grew concerned when Janet's kids touched the strange circles on the trunk of the Bel Air, fearing that they were radioactive as well. Barney's pants had prickers stuck to them, but he couldn't recall ever walking through a bush that had them. The tops of his shoes were scuffed without explanation, and there was a tear in Betty's dress. Both of their watches had died sometime during the trip home, and the strap to the binoculars had been broken, too. They couldn't piece it together. What had happened after Barney sighted the craft in that clearing? It was all a fog. Betty phoned Pee's Air Force Base to report their sighting on the 21st. She left the more sensational aspects of their story out, but the officer seemed interested in certain aspects of it, and stated that another officer would phone them later that day. Major Paul W. Henderson phoned the hills that afternoon, looking for more details. He seemed particularly interested in the fin-like structures the craft displayed at lower altitudes. He would call back for a second time before completing his report. Now, in the report filed with Project Blue Book, Henderson notes that there was radar data captured that night, but chalked it up to a temperature inversion. And the light that the hills saw that night? Project Blue Book chalked it up to an advertising searchlight. An advertising searchlight. Yes, that is correct. An advertising searchlight. Selling shit at half past ten at night. Later, their sighting was changed reclassified as insufficient data. In the days and weeks following the incident, Betty spent hours obsessing over UFOs. She consumed all she could get her hands on at her local library. She checked out books by Donald Kehoe and wrote to the organization he helped found, the National Investigations Committee on Aerial Phenomena, or NICAP. The UFO group would eventually send out an investigator, Walter Webb, to interview the couple and file a report. The Hills would often mingle at the officers' club at Pease Air Force Base on Saturday nights. They had become great friends with a former intelligence officer named James McDonald. McDonald had worked with the CIA and knew of the government's interest in the subject of UFOs. He was the first to suggest hypnosis as a means of exploring their encounter. In November of 1961, two IBM employees, Robert Homan and C.D. Jackson, wrote to the Hills, and later that month interviewed the couple in person. They asked odd questions relating to distance between sighting locations. They encouraged Betty and Barney to retrace their route in order to jog their memory. After returning home from one such trip, they walked into their apartment to an odd sight on their kitchen table. All the doors and windows had been locked, but there, in the middle of the kitchen table, sat a pile of dead brown leaves. Betty waded through, and underneath were a pair of earrings she had worn the night of the encounter. She quickly snatched them up and retreated to the bedroom before Barney could see tears run down her face. She placed them in her jewelry box and never wore them again. Not even Barney knew they had been missing since the night of the encounter. In March of 1962, the couple reached out to a psychiatrist to help treat their growing anxiety and fears. 
Barney had started to fear his drives to and from work. He had developed a fear of large open spaces and roadblocks. Betty was experiencing nightmares on a nightly basis. They were never presented in any kind of order, but in piecing them all together, alluded to being taken on board the craft and subjected to a medical examination. Barney and 25 additional employees of the Southern Annex office witnessed a large red rounded object in the early morning hours, January 17, 1962. It turned slightly on its axis, making itself look very thin before disappearing into the night. The couple reached out to Dr. Patrick Quirk for help, but also expressed interest in undergoing hypnosis. Dr. Quirk asked them to hold off on hypnosis for as long as possible. The Hills, however, were determined to seek out a physician that would be willing to put them under and ultimately reached out to Duncan Stevens. Barney's symptoms continued to worsen. He had developed a set of unexplained bumps on his genitals that his regular physician believed was a psychosomatic reaction to a number of stresses in his life. Stevens, while reticent at first, ultimately believed that hypnosis would be therapeutic for Betty and Barney Hill and consented to their request. He would refer them to a man with an impeccable track record in the field of psychotherapy a man by the name of Dr. Benjamin Simon. This is where we are going to end part one of our two-part series on the Betty and Barney Hill incident. Thank you so much for tuning in. There are a couple of news items I wanted to pass along before we wrap this thing up. Back when I announced that I would be taking two months off, part of the reason was to launch a new podcast. It's called The Coda a music podcast and every other week my friend Brian Hasty of the Double Density Podcast and myself discuss music news and a main topic music recommendations and just regularly laugh our asses off if you think that would be something you'd enjoy subscribe to The Coda a music podcast anywhere you get your podcasts secondly we're doing a big book giveaway for the next month We're giving away copies of Communion by Whitley Strieber, Incident at Exeter, and The Interrupted Journey by John G. Fuller, UFO Contact at Pascagoula by Charles Hickson and William Mendez, Encounter at Buff Ledge by Walter Webb, The Secret School by Whitley Strieber, and The UFO Controversy in America by David M. Jacobs to one lucky winner. To enter, leave us a review on iTunes, screenshot it, and send it to our email, ourstrangeskies at gmail.com. And we'll announce the winner uh, in February. Speaking of our contact info, head on over to ourstrangeskies.com to find links to all of our social media pages, as well as links to our Patreon, store, episodes, and blog. You can also find our brand new P.O. Box at the bottom of the main page as well. So if you'd like to send us some snail mail, our address is Rob Christofferson, spelled K-R-I-S-T-O-F-F-E-R-S-E-N, P.O. Box 1377, Tupper Lake, New York, 12986. This episode was written and recorded by me. 
Special thanks to Jennifer Taylor of the In Defense of Liberty and Vanished Amelia Earhart podcast and TJ Cunahan of the 4170 Solutions, a podcast production and editing company, for lending their vocal talents to this episode. Our theme song was composed by Big Cats, with additional music from Blue Dot Sessions. And our logo and web design is by the great Desdemona. And finally, don't forget to look up, because you never know what you'll find in our strange skies, or over the white mountains of New Hampshire. In Gray We Trust.